This is Naked M.I.P. With Masamela Matfumal. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Folks, a real pleasure to have a very special guest today, not only because of the book she's written and the research she's doing, the way she's educating us all, but also perhaps most importantly, we have a couple things in common. She went to college in Nashville, across the street from where I was going to high school. Uh, even though we're not we're not that far apart in age at all. No, we are not. <laughs> we're not. We absolutely are not. Um, she was at Vanderbilt University while I attended University of Nashville. Now she is on the faculty law professor at one of my alma maters, Georgetown University, Hoya Saxa. Um, and those are the things that important that are important, of course, and we we appreciate that. But we want to talk about some great work she's doing, some great research she's doing. Um, and she's doing it in such a way that it will continue to inform our people, inform uh, our, our movement, uh, as a matter of fact. And so we want to get into it. Uh, her book is entitled White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. Professor Cheryl Cashin joins us now from Washington, D.C. Professor, how are you this morning? I'm good. God is good, Reverend Mark. It's so good to be with you. <laughs> and it, it is It is a pleasure, and it's a pleasure to have you. Good to be with you um, as, as well. I um, want to start this way, uh, and I guess it's good uh, to renew our knowledge of how some of our living spaces, spaces where we reside as black people even came to be in the first place. And, you know, a lot of people throw the terms around uh, gentrifer gentrification, uh, urban renewal, African-American uh, removal. But it seems we've never really had any self-determination as a people, have we, when it comes to where we live and reside and raise our families, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the central messages of this book, I, I call the people who descended from the enslaved descendants, and I call the people trapped in high poverty black neighborhoods, especially, I call them descendants. It's a, a term of love, right? Um, but the message is every time this country seemed to have put to bed a peculiar black subordinating institution, it created another one from slavery to Jim Crow to the iconic black hood. And my point is that the primary response of this country to the great migrants, uh, more than 6 million black people moving north and west to escape the violent black Jim Crow was to contain them in their own neighborhoods, right? Uh, and, and contain them using violence, racial restrictive covenants, discrimination, all manner of means, um, and then to cut those neighborhoods off from the kind of resources and subsidies that were rained down on white neighborhoods. So absolutely, and in the 20th and 21st century, the primary experience of Black American descendants has been defined by segregation. Right. Even if you make 
so-called good money, right? Um, even, you know, black people making six figures are more likely to live in neighborhoods with the accoutrements and resources that white people making 40,000 get. So um, I argue in this book that we have a system of residential caste um, that was created to contain black people, but it, 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 it's still going on and everybody is ensnared in it. A term um, that has become popular lately too, and, and Ta-Nehisi kind of brought even more into popularity. Uh, full disclosure, I'm someone who's very active in the reparations movement. Mm -hmm. And these issues come up. And one term that's often thrown about is redlining. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you, you're going into even before that. Talk to us a little bit more about and that's important because we we laud the Great Migration. That's an important point in our history. But you mm -hmm. just said something a lot of people don't deal with. They, the plan was okay. They coming up here, from what I hear you saying. But we got to control this. They can't. They they're not just going to go anywhere they want to go, right? Absolutely. So the South had a system of social control that was Jim Crow. The residential patterns were actually. You know, there wasn't that much residential segregation in the South, but they had Jim Crow to keep Black people in their place, right? So the North, Midwest, and West, um, when they had a critical mass of Black people coming, they created a residential system to contain and control Black people. The, you know, so-called, you know, the hood, when I say ghetto, I don't use it as a perjurative. It is just a descriptor. Uh, the, the demographers define a ghetto as a place where 40% or more of the people who live there are poor, right? Concentrated Black poverty was constructed by federal government policies, intentionally constructed, right? So it's a mechanism of social control. And what, what I said, residential caste... We government to this day overinvests and excludes in affluent white space and disinvests and contains and frankly preys on people in um, high poverty black and brown neighborhoods. And then they tell stories about the people who live in the hood to justify the way things are. And and so um, that the 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 main decisions you talked about redlining. Starting in the 20s, starting in the teens, right? When you get this critical mass of Black people coming, and I show this in lots of different cities in the book, um, they first they try uh, racial zoning. Um, Supreme Court strikes that down. Then they do restrictive covenants. But the redlining was the federal government marking virtually all Black neighborhoods with a D, the lowest rating. And they said explicitly, hazardous right? Black people were marked as hazardous and their neighborhoods overnight start experiencing disinvestment, you know? Um, and we've been in, and you know, it was a recent Fed study, which found that all of the Black neighborhoods marked with the D eight decades ago, to this day, it correlates with disinvestment, decline, segregation. So we're living with those policies today. And my main message is, you know, government created this system, and to this day, it still invests in segregation and containing people and preying on people and over-investing in affluent white space.
You said you said the federal government kind of establishes. Tell us a little more about that and, and who was in power making those decisions at that time. All right. So um, prior to the 30-year mortgage, I mean, the 30-year mortgage didn't exist in the in the 20s, in the 30s, right? You basically had to have enough money to buy a house almost with cash or over 10 years, right? So yeah. the federal government, you know, this is part, part, you know, part of the New Deal, um, wanted to bring home ownership to the masses, the white masses. And what did they do? They said to insurance company, to, to lenders, look, we will insure... Um, the repayment of, lo of, of loans, of 30-year loans, um, but we won't do it. We will only do it in homogeneous majority white areas. Black people are risky. Mixed areas are risky. Right? So this was the largest, you know, infusion of, of, of subsidy for home ownership at that point in the country. And suddenly in places like New York City, it became cheaper if you could get uh, a government-backed mortgage, FHA-backed mortgage, HOLC-backed mortgage. It was cheaper to move out to the suburbs and buy a home and gain equity than to rent, right? But that this that singular wealth-building program, um, uh, subsidized by the government, they cut black people out of it. Same with v Veterans Administration-backed loans, right? Um, and, and, and that was what redlining is. And so they, that's what gets them started, right? Um, and then they mark black neighborhoods as, as risky, right? So the distress, distress and disinvestment in black neighborhoods, people start to associate those conditions with blackness, right? <laughs> it's, 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 you know, so they, they actually made the avoidance by whites of having black people as neighbors worse, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the the prejudice became systematized, and it made it easier for white people to gain wealth and escape living uh, with black people and making actually living near black people abnormal, right? Yeah. It actually yeah. had been quite normal before they they instituted this system. Yeah, yeah. More MIP after this message. I recall too, and folks, forgive me. I'm going to put this out there, even though I don't remember all the names. But there, there have been some conversations about how even it got to the 30 years, uh, because at one time, um, in our enslaved ancestors were uh, collateral when loans were given, mm -hmm. and um, the it has something to do if I'm remembering this correctly, even a 30-year number with the life expectancy of an enslaved ancestor. So somewhere in that, it's been shown, that's how they come up with the 30. Uh, and that, and that's how you you get to that. And folks, I just want to remind my audience, we've talked about the FHA. As, as, as people know, Professor, um, wealth in America, middle-classness in America is defined by home ownership. That's really all there is. And so the people you're describing, the, the white folks, the FHA loans that they were given, that we weren't given, that's how they got established. So when people, when we start talking about social safety nets, reparations for that matter, um, things that we did not get as a people, mm -hmm. folks think white folks just woke up rich. Middle, white folks just woke up with, with wealth and property. 
No, they got help. This was the incentive, was it not? Right, right. It, it wasn't. They didn't just middle class didn't come up under a cabbage patch. I mean, this was like every other modern society or society period. There were things that were put in place: FHA, homestead, homesteading, GI right. Bill. Right. We All weren't even originally. Yeah, we weren't even originally including the Social Security. So I just want to remind people that, and and this is this is how that came to be. And then we were um, um, left by the wayside, uh, seemingly um, never to catch up. And then so obviously, um, this is still ongoing, and it putting us in that position did it not, Professor? I mean, it becomes self-perpetuating. Right. Ways, so you, it, you, it, you're trying to break out of that cycle, but it still exists today. Yeah. And but I, I want what I try to underscore is there are government policies today that incur. I say that we have a system of residential caste and there are three main anti-black practices that undergird it, that keep it going. Um, one is boundary maintenance. You know, I talked about some of the policies that created these boundaries in the past. And, you know, some some cities, the boundaries are really, really stark, right? Um, uh, if you go in St. Louis, the Del Mar divide, but a lot of people experience this, you know, Buffalo, you name the cities, like that's the black side of town, you know, right. Cleveland, East and West, right? It's sometimes it's exceedingly sharp, but, you know, we still get racial steering by realtors, discrimination and mortgage lending. Black neighborhoods and Black people are still redlined today. There's a lot of, of, of recent, recent studies showing that if you are Black or Brown, um, you can have the same credit as a white person. You are much more likely to be discriminated against and given subprime products rather than normal products that have you know, low interest rates and traditional lending. Um, we have exclusionary zoning, um, uh, government sub a government subsidized affordable housing complex. You know, the federal government rains down something like ten billion dollars a year through the tax credit through a tax credit program for building low income housing. Most of that gets built in communities that already have more than their fair share. So I could go on and on, but my point is that the federal government to this day and local governments still invest in and encourage segregation rather than inclusion, right? So boundary maintenance, right? The other anti-Black um, process is opportunity hoarding, right? Even in Black-run cities, it breaks my heart. But, you know, in, in Baltimore, there was this, which it had like six, seven, maybe eight Black mayors in a row and a majority of Black people on the city council, when they actually did an analysis and looked at where their community development dollars were going, this Black-run city was spending four times as much in white neighborhoods as, as Black neighborhoods, right? Mm. Now, the new mayor, Brandon Scott, is disrupting that, right? The, you know, now, now they're, they're working on racial equity, right? You had to find out that, but Chicago, in Chicago, White neighborhoods get three times as much public and private investment as black ones, right? Mm -hmm. The new mayor of Chicago is trying to disrupt that too, right? She has a new, but you, but the, the systems, what we, what we have, we have this mythology in this country that high opportunity neighborhood living is earned, um, and that hood living is the deserved result of bad 
choices and bad behavior when nothing could be further from the truth. We have systems that make it very likely that you will rise and stay uh, on the top of the heap in, in high opportunity places. And that for those who lost the neighborhood lottery at birth, we have systems that by design make it, that are designed for you to stay in your place and make yeah. it very improbable that you'll have social mobility. That's yeah. the best. Yeah. More MIP after this message. And what about, because I know you deal with, with community development, urban renewal. It seems we're also um, moved about at the will of, I guess, government regulations or, or corporate right. America. Uh, as, I, as I was saying to you before we came on, I was saying, sharing with the professor folks, I lived in Washington, D.C. from 1985 to 2010. Mm -hmm. And I watched black families who had homes in downtown Washington, um, even near the White House. Mm -hmm. Those neighborhoods neglected. Uh, those families sold mom and daddy's homes, forced out in the suburbs in PG County. Mm -hmm. Now, all those homes are worth millions of dollars owned mm -hmm. by whites in Washington, D.C., and now PG mm -hmm. County's run down. So, so talk to us about that, too, how, you know, we migrated to escape Jim, Gro Jim Crow, but now it seems there are other factors that are migrating us all over the place, wherever. So it's almost as if, okay, we move pushing y'all back out to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. 30 years from now, they might say, you know what? We move you Negroes back into the city. We want suburbs back. But it's as if we have no, 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 really, am I right? It's as if we have no will or any say in that. We're not right. self-determining at all, right? Right, right. Okay, so the professor and me has to, I forgot to tell you the third anti-Black process. Let me just flag Please. it. We can discuss it later. <laughs> but the third one is surveillance, right? So, um, you know, boundary maintenance, opportunity hoarding, and then surveillance. Black bodies are surveilled wherever they are, but particularly in high opportunity, I mean, high poverty black neighborhoods. They live in a police state and they're surveilled, right? Okay, now you're talking about displacement of black people. You know, and it starts with urban renewal, which James Baldwin, um, my man, I shouldn't do this, but my man, you see him. Yeah, come on, no, that's fine. You should do it. What you mean? You absolutely should. He's, like, so he's with me all the time. Right? <laughs> it must be. He must be. He's the man, right? Oh, okay. No doubt. No doubt. So, nobody, nobody could put together a sentence like James Ball. Uh, exactly. When I was well, learning how to write, when I learned how to write, I tried, I tried to model myself after him. Right. right, right. Low, uh, low, I am unworthy. But right. no one. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, uh, the federal government in, start, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, spends $3 billion that it sends down to local co local communities to displace Black people from strategic neighborhoods, right? Um, and a lot of those neighborhoods were vital, right? They weren't slums, but it's all in the name of slum clearance, but it's Negro removal. And where did those black people get moved? A lot of them get moved into public housing, assigned on a uh, racially, uh, a, a separate and an equal basis. Black people are going to live here and these projects and white people are going to live here. Right. So that concentrated poverty. Now, this displacement now, a lot of it is is gentrification, is is people getting priced out. And part of the part of the reason that happens is there are not enough policies in place 
to hold on to the affordable housing that we do have, right? In fact, uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to do it, but there's a certain mayor, not the current one, but a, another one um, of, of, of uh, DC, they actually, I think really wanted to achieve that displacement and pull, bring in higher income people that could pay higher taxes. Yeah. Uh, they were to totally indifferent to making the city inclusive for all types of people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, we have these cycles, right? And and all of it relates back to a general vision of separation and segregation being the natural order of things. They, you know, um, as opposed to inclusion, robust inclusion being, that's what cities were like at the dawn of the 20th century. You could find rich people living right next to poor people, black people living right next to white people, right? Um, it's only when the, the federal government starts this business and you get this exclusionary zone that it the vision of how we live is that um, certain people are entitled to live in their own enclaves and everybody else who can't keep up, that's your problem. Right. Yeah. Well, black people who have less wealth, you know, DC is expensive. Yeah. Right. So you know, cool. it's unbelievably expensive. Right. So, you know, me and my husband, we we managed to keep up, but you know, it's like two pay, you know, two professional family with two paychecks. That's how we keep up. Right. But yeah. um, it's it is uh, you know, the and what I what I say in my my last chapter it's called abolition and repair. Right, that we need to have a different vision of uh, who the city is for, who any community is for, and that everybody, and, and particularly, my, my main point is that we need to change the lens applied to Black people from presumed thug to presumed citizen mm. and see them worthy of inclusion, see them as assets, three dimensional human beings who deserve to be included and deserve investment right. and deserve support in their own liberation. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, no, very powerfully put. Let me just ask you about one other city. I, I, uh, um, um, uh, drive my son off in college in Atlanta. And the past, no, no, Clark, Clark, Atlanta, Clark, okay. Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I confess, I, I don't frequent Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, I usually just moving through the airport when I'm changing planes. Um, right. And spending a considerable amount of time to get him settled and moved and spent some time in the city in, in August. And I can remember when Atlanta was this bustling black mecca mm -hmm. of the city. Mm -hmm. Hollowed out. You know, even black folk moving out to the suburbs. Atlanta Braves even moved to the suburbs. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, you you know about that? They moved out of I downtown. Been, I mean, I'm I haven't been in Atlanta a long time. I used to be there all the time, but I haven't been there in ages. Well, I I think that might be a, a case study for some of your work because mm -hmm. I called folk I knew. I said, "What is going on?" And most black folk live out this the, the downtown area. There's no, and, and it just seems to me in all these cities, like I live in New York. Mm -hmm. In DC, even where you are, there's always new development. Now we know it's not for us. None of that is going on in Atlanta. I can't help but wonder 
if that's because of the, the the blackness of its political system, and this was a, this was a true city where there was black empowerment, folks being elected to office, it's it's hollowed out, but it's as if it's waiting for something else to come in to take yeah. it over. And most black folk, I, I see what's happening, and I don't mean insulting about Atlanta. I, I may be totally wrong, but mm-hmm. it just reminds me of D.C. in the '80s and '90s. Black folk couldn't wait to get, oh, we're going to go to the suburbs. I'm like, y'all really want to go suburbs? Or have you been manipulating the thinking that's what you need to do? Now everybody saw they sold mom and daddy's house uh, <laughs> in D.C. Them, them houses were $5 million out and mom and daddy raised you in. In Atlanta, suburbs, suburbs, suburbs. It's the same thing going on. And it just concerns me once again. Here is an example of some other type of... Uh, um, non-self-government governance non-self-determination for us as a people in terms of where we choose to live what we're choosing to develop and what is our seat at the table where these decisions are made well this is a fascinating question right and um before covid many cities dc included were becoming like paris where all you know the city particularly a global city were becoming the playground for rich people you know, uh, of of all colors, but particular. You know, um, and so you know when people want something, and they're 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 obviously uh, uh, who who has power. This is what a caste system is about. Who has power, and how is it distributed? And yes, most of the development in my city, D.C., it's luxurious development that for you know only a slice of the, the the very rich people can afford right and 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 i have that same record who made these decisions who decided that the 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 wharf you know the wharf area you remember the channel in oh yeah oh my goodness don't get me started go that was ours channel in was where you went to get a steak daddy yeah or, yeah you know, yeah let's not go there yeah but, yeah that's right you know, it was it was a place <laughs> So that's a cultural institution. That's a, let me, but here's Lord have mercy. Not recognized. It's like it, it's been san- desanitized, right? Oh, right. Oh, Gone. Oh. So, um, what what I say is what we have in terms of development and how who gets what and why. We have ho- direct horizontal competition between co- communities of great abundance. You notice how Buckhead is trying to secede from Atlanta? Have you followed that story? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. In 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 direct competition with everybody else, people who who can't afford to buy into luxurious, um, poverty-free havens. And elites have a way of bending development to toward what they want, right? Yeah. Um, even like I I write about this in the book that Trump comes Trump the developer, the developer president comes up with um, these opportunity zones where they're going to do, you get a a tax break of zero percent right you you basically get to shelter one hundred percent of the capital gains of your investments in real estate and this is supposed to channel investment into high poverty areas. And it's riddled with loopholes and turns out, you know, most a lot of what happens from opportunity zones is this luxury development that's adjacent to poverty areas. Right. So it just goes on and on. Um, yeah. 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 We we need a vision 
of racial equity and inclusive development that and you, you, you're, you're into reparations, right? Right. I call for repair. The beauty of once you understand residential caste and how it operates, um, the, the way forward is clear. You just have to reverse these anti-black processes. So um, inclusion, inclusionary zoning rather than exclusion, right? Green lining of historically defunded black neighborhoods rather than redlining, right? Black historically defunded black neighborhoods that were marked with the D 80 years ago should be first in line for any new infrastructure dollars, any new community development dollars, right? Children trapped in high poverty schools, they should be getting extra, right? I'm I'm more interested in disrupting the systems that 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 harm people now, frankly, than getting anyone a check for being a descendant of a slave person. Oh yeah. Oh right. yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I taught. I give examples of some cities that are going in a different direction than what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are quite a number of cities now require a racial equity analysis in their budgeting to 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 make it to to, to be clear about how are we spending money and who are we spending it for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you have to you have to be empowered. You know, it's Chocolate City is, we don't have Chocolate City in D.C. anymore. We don't. Chocolate, chocolate chip. Right. But my point is on the city council, we used to have a majority black run city council. Not anymore. Right. So you you do have to have multiracial power that gets you that that gets you a majority on the city council. Um, you do need to elect mayors who you know have a rainbow of progressive multiracial power behind them to say we're going to start doing things differently and we're going to value everyone you know um, and we're going to build a 21st century inclusive city that has a lot of different types of housing right that invest more in high poverty places and, and you know to give those people a chance some some cities are doing simple things like making the bus routes from the poorest neighborhoods free. You know, just mm, so you have a chance to get, this is the kind of vision I'm talking about, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, you, you're, you're right, uh, as a matter of fact. And, and folks, I meant to take a picture of this when I was in Atlanta. I'm going to do it next week. I'm going to be there next week and I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. The Mercedes-Benz Stadium is practic practically sits within the Atlanta University Center complex. Really, and and the pit the statue of Dr. King, with uh, releasing the dove that you see when you drive into the Land University Complex, uh, Land Center Complex, Mercedes Benz Stadium is right across from that. And there's a photograph I meant to take of Dr. King, and him, uh, 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 him being engulfed behind him, um, with this Mercedes Benz Stadium, the very example of of capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and see, then the question becomes: What what is their plan over here? You 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 put a Mercedes Benz Stadium next to an HBCU area. What what ultimately are you really thinking about doing? I'm just just putting that out there, folks, for mm -hmm. for us to examine. Mm -hmm. um, you are, and I mean, you're a law professor, right? And, I, we, and folks, I'm, we, I would my next you 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 read my mind in terms of some policy changes. By the way, on the issue of reparation reparations, I agree. I am. An HR 40 proponent. In fact, we'll be in Atlanta 
next, next weekend for reparations retreat. When we get finished talking, I may invite you uh, because we're going to have other professors. No, no, because here's most of us this is where we are. There's there's a segment of people who really ain't us, but have some other agenda who say check, 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 check. Everybody gets every black person gets check in a covid economy. That's gone. You're going to pay some bills. That's not generational wealth. That's not the FHA and the GI Bill and other homestead and other folk got. Most of us understand that what we need is repair in all of these areas. And see, you frankly have made another argument in that regard. H.R. 40 not only includes enslavement, uh, Professor, but the vestiges, the offspring. So everything you've listed is an ongoing vestige. And so the toll just keeps ticking. And mm-hmm. so there's not one check you can give each of us individually that can cover all that, but there can be an establishment of programs, some of which you've suggested mm-hmm. to build and establish it. So I just want to I just want to lay that out. And I think what you shared is important. But um, you are a law professor. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, um, do you also are you also making an argument or do you also see um, legal um, jurisprudence? remedies uh, lawsuit remedies i mean do we need to also go to the go to the courts or 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 what first of all let me say i i was a law clerk to thurgood marshall his last year on the court right i didn't know that i'm sorry i didn't know that god bless you no but it was it was just one of the best years of my life right i do think there's a place for the kind of work that ldf does every day. They're fighting the battle on so many fronts, right? Uh, voter suppression, uh, all manner of you know inequality. There's a place for that, right? But I don't. I I think we are not going to get abolition of anti-black processes, you know, including humanization and care in law enforcement, without mobilizing political power to adopt different policies and strategies, right? Uh, And, you know, the federal court is filled now with Trump appointees. I I don't have a lot of hope for getting, I mean, look at Brown v. Board, right? A transformational decision, right? And I I actually, you and I are same generation. (laughs) I'm just a few years older than you. But I live the dream of well-resourced, integrated public education in Huntsville, Alabama. And the school, the high school I went to, they had to tear it down because it became so impoverished, you know, it became an apartheid school that no one wanted to go to, right? So the the division of Brown was there, but it's been betrayed, um, you you know, because we, first of all, the, 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 the judiciary, I saw this working for Justice Marshall, they decided it was time to get out of the business of, of policing school desegregation and making school districts integrate. Right. You know? right, right. So you, I think you really, you, there's, I, I come from a, a, you know, civil rights agitating family. You know? That's right. And yeah. each generation, each generation has to get up and fight and mobilize. And, you know, I believe, I, I, I really like what, what Stacey Abrams is doing and others was like, I'm going to run for office That's right. Know, and That's I'm right. going to gather my power and I'm going to excite people. My, my father ran for governor against George Wallace. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and your, and your, what was your, was your, your great, great grandfather? 
who he was, was my great he was a reconstruction legislator in Alabama, my great grandfather, right? But uh, you know, and I I'm so excited by all these people who are just saying, okay, I'm going to run, right? I'm gonna run for office. I'm going to convince people. You know, what's who's the the black senator? I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Raphael Warnock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raphael yeah. Warnock. Right, right. Yeah. You know, um, I I really if we don't continue to mobilize power and change policies, we're lost. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll just get more of the same. So. Um, law is there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have enough lawyers to lawyer up and sue to combat all of the injustice that in, in, is in this society. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, but you know, I, I, I want, I want to end on a hopeful note, right? Um, please. the summer of 2020, we had 20 million people in this country rising up all over this, the country, raising signs saying Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, New York Times says it was the largest social protest in the history of this country. And I thought when I was writing this book that, that you, I said, you know, the, the way to transformation is one, you had to change the lens on which people see Black people. And then you had to gather power and just reverse these anti-Black policies. I thought the hardest part was getting people to see black people the way I was taught to see them, mm. with love, with with uh, you know a got you know kings agape love, but uh, you know I was raised to believe that black people could do anything if they had the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. But to change the lens from presumed thug to presumed citizen, I thought that was the hardest part. But you know, after poor George Floyd's slow assassination, I could see that not everybody, but there was like a a critical mass of white people who were horrified and said, you know, this is not the country I want to live in. Right. Mm. And the beauty is you don't have to convince every white person. You just need enough of them to join your coalition. And if you look at Reverend Warnock's successful campaign, uh, you look at Biden's Biden centered racial justice when he ran. I mean, he's having trouble getting stuff done. But I think we're gonna we're nearing a tipping point, and we have to keep gathering that power. And frankly, um, there's some older whites that just can't handle the loss of centrality of whiteness. They're not gonna live forever. So. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and 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 I, and I also think too, as we close, uh, you know, we're in this debate now about build back better and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, and this is what it means by being holistic, your research could have informed that, you know, mm-hmm. right away. We're talking about putting infrastructure dollars and human infrastructure. Let's let's green line those places that were redlined. Right. Let's talk about I mean, people still in Nashville today talk about that's just one example how the highway itself was a form of segregation, segregation and cutting through black the black community, right. cutting it off. I mean, so even sometimes infrastructure historically has done that. Folks, we invite you to check out White Space, Black Hood. I know this will not be the last time uh, Professor Cashin is, I, and I talk not only because she is a Hoya, but her <laughs> folks went to Fisk. I'm going to get your parents' names. I know your father's name is John, but I'm, I'm sure some of my folk know your folks uh-huh. uh, if, they went, if they went to Fisk. Uh-huh. Um, but, but we thank you. Uh, for what you have done, um, folks, we should read this. We should be informed. We're not even talking about. I know some of us um, have some misgivings, 
about what the Biden administration is, is not, and is not doing, but we've not even contemplated um, what Professor Cashin has put before us in this conversation. And we need to continue to mature, enlighten and educate ourselves so we can have these discussions and raise these issues when we're using or trying to exert our political power for policy. White space, black hood, opportunity hoarding and segregation. Um, the history of, of the American racial residential caste system, the residential caste system, very, very important. Professor Cashin, thank you so much for joining us on Make It Plain. Thank you, Reverend. I've loved it. I loved, I loved it as well. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.